joy. We just sang about it. Some of us live with it every day. Some of us choose to live without it. The funny thing about joy, when you look into the scriptures for the word joy, or the word um, rejoice, no other language has as many words for joy and rejoicing as the Hebrew language. I thought that was pretty unique. Something to be pondered. It's not something that should be lightly dismissed. In fact, uh, we're going to talk about the secret of joy today through the book of Nehemiah. And you may be thinking, well, that's an odd place to find joy. And you're not wrong. <clears throat> Nehemiah, actually, one of the things I like about Nehemiah in chapter 8, he doesn't just talk about joy, he demands joy of, of the people. I love that. They heard the word of the Lord read to them out loud, and then Nehemiah demanded that they be joyful based on what they had heard. I think that's awesome. Joy is demanded of us. Today, when we look into the secrets of joy and we see what is revealed to us from Nehemiah, we're going to see a couple of things. First off, we will see sometimes joy is a matter of commandment. Sometimes it's a matter of change. But joy is always a matter of choice. It's what you choose to be. And those are the things we're going to see this morning as we look into the secrets of joy based on Nehemiah. Will you pray with me? Father God, I come before you and we open up your word from Nehemiah and we look at joy, not just so that we can laugh and giggle, but so that we can get an, an idea of what's expected of us, what having joy really is, what the secret of joy is. And I pray that as we, we look at your word, as we look at the, the circumstances surrounding this command for joy, I pray that we will see the relevance of it today in our own lives. We will see that we get to choose to be joyful or not. I thank you for the opportunity I have to share this with your people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I want to start right off in Nehemiah chapter 8. So just jump right into that. It's, it's in the Old Testament, just so you know. <clears throat> I'm reading from the NIV. We're going to read verses 1 through 13, Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon. Now, I just want to pause right there for a second to let you know how much joy y'all should have. I'm not going to preach that long, but from daybreak till noon, that's a couple of hours. Now, I could go, but we won't. So just right there, you could start off right now choosing to be joyful just for that one little fact. Uh, so daybreak till noon, where did I lost? Okay, there we are. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. He read aloud from daybreak till noon as, he, as I did that part. Ezra, the teacher of the law. No, where did I, I lost my place. So I was trying to be funny. There we go. And all the people listened attentively. That's the other thing. Even though I may mess up, you still get to listen attentively as we preach. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah. <clears throat> this will be fun because these are some great names. Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. And on his left 
were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem. This next one I have a hard time with. It's Hash Banana, but I keep wanting to say in Hash Banana. That's just, it's like that Chiquita Banana commercial when we were kids. Zechariah and Mushalem. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. As he opened it, the people all stood up. One more just brief little thing you can be joyful for. You do not have to stand the whole time that I'm preaching. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatha, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Verse 8 says, They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Verse 13, on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. Now I need to catch you up to chapter 8. What's happened in the first seven chapters of Nehemiah is Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Susa, and he heard that the remnant, the Israelites who were left in Jerusalem, that the, he heard the wall was in irrepair. He heard that the worship was not happening properly. He heard some bad reports about what was left over in Jerusalem. So he went before the king, doing his job, serving the king, and he was sad. And the king said to him, why are you sad? There, you're not sick. This sadness can only come from your heart. And Nehemiah said, well, how can I be happy when my ancestors, the, the people of my nation, are, are without proper home, without a wall to protect them, without a place to properly worship our God. And, and, and the neat thing about this is before Nehemiah had these, these conversations with the king, he says, and I prayed about what I would say. And, and God shared with Nehemiah this boldness. And he says to the king, may it please the king, would you send me? Send me back home. Send me back to a foreign country from where I am. Send me back to my home. And, and not only send me back, but will you give me uh, some letters that will, will allow me safe passage? Will you give me some other letters that will require cedars from the forest that I need? Will you give me some other letters so I can get the equipment that we need? And so not only did he ask for basically a vacation, he asked for the king to pay for all of that on his dime to go back and, and rebuild Jerusalem. And the king was not even a worshiper of our God. He wasn't even a worshiper. And so the king says, sure, I'll do that. And so Nehemiah goes back and he has these letters and he starts this process. 
and they build the wall. Now, uh, there's construction going on right over here at Providence. And every day when I come in, I see those guys and they're starting to mix up the concrete and some of them are starting to weld a little bit and some of them are, are just, they're starting to, once they get the wood frame up, because every good house in Alabama has brick on it, even if it's not a real brick house, they're still covering it with brick. And these guys are out here, they're bricking up these walls. That's not how they did things back then. You see, they may have been given permission, but some of the surrounding, I call them little kings, some of the surrounding kingdoms of Jerusalem at that time, they didn't like that the walls were being rebuilt. And so they started threatening Nehemiah. They started threatening the people who were doing the work. So these guys, this is how cool Nehemiah is. He said, we were working with our weapons in one hand and our tools in the other. So these guys are building walls, probably not out of properly... Uh, symmetrically made bricks, but out of rocks and whatever's around. And so they're like rolling a rock up and throwing some mortar and they got their spear or their bow or a shield. And then he also says, we work during the day and then we took turns standing watch by night. See, this wall building was a process. Now here's the really cool thing. As they go through this wall building, it happens faster than anybody could imagine. Faster than what we would probably even be able to build a wall today by our standards. And so we get through all this wall building. There's, there's distraction. These other little kingdoms are trying to get Nehemiah to, to distract. They're like, hey, come down here and talk to us. And he says, well, why should I leave this work to come and visit you when the wall is still exposed? Jerusalem is still open. And my God still needs me to complete this task. And, and he wouldn't even give him the time of day because he was focused on what needed to be done. And so that catches you up to the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. And now we get to chapter 8. And the wall is finished. Their security is brought to Jerusalem. And they read what I just read to you. And what happens here is the people are now overcome by the realization of their sin. Now you may be thinking, well, what sin do they have? They just built a wall. They did all this work for God. They begin to show their sorrow. Well, what sorrow do they have? They just built this wall. They did all this good stuff. Well, in the distress of Jerusalem, the, the Israelite people who had money were loaning it out to other Israelite families, but then charging them interest. See? And, and there's a point in, I think it's chapter 6, where Nehemiah goes to the governing people, these, these, these other men in Jerusalem, and he says, Hey, why are you... Yes, we're loaning people money. We're making sure everyone has food. Why are you charging your own brothers and sisters interest? Three and four times the amount of what's even, even the, the pagans would charge. And so Nehemiah sets them straight on that. And they all say, you know what, we're going to stop. We're going to give things back. We're going to make things right. But as the word of the Lord is being read to them, they become over, uh, just overcome with the realization of their sin. Now, I have to pause. I want to tell you another story before we get back to this. There's another person who became overwhelmed with the realization of their sin prior to this happening. You, you may have read about him as well. His name was David. He was a king for a while. You've, you've heard a little bit about him. He made a mistake. He, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he, he went through life thinking everything was okay. And one day Nathan the prophet came to David and told him a story about a man that had a sheep. One little sheep. He loved the sheep. He took care of the sheep. And he said, and the, the man's neighbor who had many sheep came and took that sheep and killed it and, and ate it and shared it with his friends. And David was so angered by this story, he just gets belligerent. He's like, what this man has done is despicable. 
he should be, you know, put in jail. He should be, all these bad things should happen to this guy. And, and David's just calling out all this, this punishment for this person. And then Nathan, that's what I love about Nathan, he goes, you, sir, are that man. And so David's like, he should be shot. He should be hung. He should be beaten with a wet noodle. He should be, you're that man. Wait a minute, what? Me? Yeah. And David realizes he's that man, and he is overcome with sorrow for what he's done. Nathan points it out. And, and Scripture, and I'm going to share some of the Psalms that David wrote on the outcome of that. And the reason I tell you that story is because Nehemiah recognized, just like David did, that there are limits for our sorrow. Even sorrow before God. There are limits to your sorrow. See, Satan, he wants to bind you up in your mistake. He, he wants to tie that around your feet and drop you on the water. And, and so you just sink and sink and you can't claw out of it. That's what Satan wants from us. And that's where the Israelite people, that's where these people were in Jerusalem. They've, they've been shared the word of the Lord, the law, and they're convicted of everything they've done. And they're just overcome with sorrow. Reading God's word, the sorrow and the guilt of the people. All of this happens, coincidentally, on the day of a feast. And the feasts were set up as celebration times for the people of Israel. So they would remember that God delivered them. So they would remember that God loved them. So they remember that God would collect them back into his arms and give, him, and give them strength and give them courage and restore them. And it's a day of a feast and they're reading this and, they, and Nehemiah and Ezra, they see that the people are just cut to the core and, they're, and it's just burdening them. And Nehemiah says, stop sorrowing and get happy. I love that. You see, sometimes no matter what the situation, no matter what has brought you to sorrow, sometimes you just need to get happy. And, and the thing I like about this is it wasn't optional for the people. Nehemiah ordered happiness. Go, drink, good food, good drinks. And if your neighbor doesn't have any, you share it with them. Everybody needs to be happy and remembering this feast. Yes, you need to repent, but it's time to be happy in the Lord. It tells us that happiness was possible for these people. That even though they did some dumb things, happiness was, was possible. And by the way, this is not the only time that in God's word where we see happiness being commanded towards people. But that's a whole nother sermon. And lucky for you, there's a month to talk about the secrets of joy. When you look at this situation, one of the secrets that we reveal is joy is a matter of change. It's a matter of changing your perspective. The word of the Lord was shared with them. They were, they were convicted of it. And they were convicted to a point of sorrow. And then Nehemiah said, okay, get over yourselves. Get happy. This reminds me of one of my favorite stories. And I've told this story at least once before. But some of you weren't here. And the rest of you might have been sleeping. So I want to tell this story again. It's a story about a little boy and his sister who are visiting their grandfather and their grandmother on a farm. And a little boy has a slingshot. And he accidentally, he's, 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 you know, like most boys, he's shooting at the can and shooting at a leaf and shooting at a stick. And lo and behold, there's grandma's pet duck right by the wood pile. And he thinks, I'm going to shoot the rock. It's going to bounce off the shed, just scare the duck. And the duck will quack and fly away and it'll be loads of fun. He ends up, just hits the duck in the head, kills it, graveyard dead. And he's like, oh, I got to do something. And like any 
smart young man, he decides he'll cover up his mistake. And so he drags the duck in behind the wood pile and throws some leaves over it. And then later that night at dinner, Grandma says, hey, who wants to help me clean up the dishes? And his sister said, well, Billy will. And he looked at her real funny. and She goes, I know about the duck. <laughs> so Billy jumped up and helped clean up the dishes. Next morning, they're doing some stuff. Who wants to help me in the garden? Billy does. And she looks at his sister and she goes, I know about the duck. And this goes on like they're, they're, they're there for the summer. So they're for like six weeks. This has gone on for like four and a half weeks. Finally, Billy's had enough. And he goes to his grandma and his grandpa. And he goes, I just have to tell you. He goes, I, I killed your duck. He said, I, was, I know you've been worried. You haven't seen it. And you've, you've mentioned it. And you're missing it. And I killed it. I, I was goofing off my slings. I killed the duck. But more than that, I, I drug it behind the wood pile. I covered it up with some leaves. And I just, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry I killed your duck. Grandma and grandpa said, we saw the whole thing. We were just wondering how long you were going to let your sister hold it over you until you would just come clean. Same thing. The, the people of Jerusalem, they hear this story and then, it, and then it just draws them down. Their sin draws them down. And Nehemiah's like, forget about the duck. It's time to get happy. Celebrate that our God not only restored this wall, but he's going to restore you as a people. Joy is a matter of change. You have to change your actions. You see, the kid in the story, he had to first, he had to quit trying to cover up his mistake. He had to fess up to what he had done. And you'll find when we, when we change our actions, we'll begin to change our way of thinking, which is the second part. You have to admit your mistake, and then you can change your way of thinking. You're, you're no longer a slave to the action of sin. You see, Nehemiah went to these, to these governors, if you will, and he said, hey, you are taking advantage of people who are already down and out. You're charging them double and triple interest. You're taking their sons and their daughters as slaves. You can't do this. And you know what? It became a matter of change. They changed their action. Okay, we'll stop. And by changing their action, they changed their way of thinking. They're no longer a slave to the action of sin. You can forget the duck. You can move on with forgiveness and joy. I want to do something really unique. They, tell, they say you shouldn't do this in public speaking, but we're going to do it anyways. I'm going to stop preaching right now. And I want you all to take a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes, and we're going to spend a little bit of time just in silent prayer. And if you've got something you need to admit to God right now, maybe there's the dead duck in your life that you think you've covered up. He's already seen it. Maybe you've taken advantage of someone and it's time to set that straight in your heart. I want you to do that. I'm not going to say another word uh, for a few minutes. I want everybody here just to think about where you are. And if there's something you need to ask forgiveness for, it's time to change our actions. It's time to change our thought process.
Father God, we just pause amid worship of you to clear our minds, to clear our hearts, to lay out before you and admit to you our mistakes, our shortcomings, our struggles, the things we've done that have separated us from you. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for those things. That more than just seeing a story from Nehemiah, we'll see that you are a restorer of of souls. You're a rebuilder of lives. Lord, help us to take those steps that are necessary to allow you to be prominent in our lives and to rebuild our lives. Amen. You know, another secret of joy is that it's a matter of choice. I've seen a lot of people that kind of remind me of human versions of the grumpy cat. They just won't smile for anything. There's no joy in their life. Some people are just chronically unhappy. And I don't understand that because I like to laugh and I like to to be happy and I like to have joy and I just can't imagine living life chronically unhappy but people are out there that's how they are sometimes and and they're so unhappy they don't want to see other people happy either do you know anyone like this is there don't raise your hand and don't point out people around you okay but is there a grumpy cat person in your life maybe you're the grumpy cat if you're thinking nope not in my life it could be you (laughs) hopefully not but it could be it could happen you need to change your actions you need to change your thinking no need to be chronically unhappy. I've already t- I told you last week that we had victory in Jesus. I-, I shared that with you. So come on, get happy. There's no need to be grumpy. Some people have no joy because they have their own agenda. Even as Christians, our own agenda will cause us to forget God's plan. Our own agenda will, allow, will begin to trump what God has planned for us. You see, we don't get to tell God what to do. But our own agenda ultimately will be selfish. Our own agenda ultimately is internally motivated. It's all about us. But God's agenda, it will help us be selfless. It will help us to be joy-filled. Another reason we lose our joy is that one simple little three-letter word. S-I-N. Sin. Sin will separate us from our families. It will separate us from our friends. Most of all, it will separate us from our God. When you look in our world today, it's very evident that we have a sin problem. In my own humble opinion, one of the biggest biggest problems with sin is we allow it to consume us. Kind of like the duck. Kind of like the people of Jerusalem. They allowed their sin to consume them to the point that they were... They were so filled with sorrow, they couldn't celebrate the feast. They finished the wall, and the word of the Lord was read to them, and they realized their sin before God, and they were overcome by this realization of their sin. They were stuck in guilt or self-loathing in this mode that just would not let them worship God properly, depending on whatever their sin happened to be. And Nehemiah said, whoa, this will never do. He said, people, this is a feast day. Come on, get happy. Yes, I know you've sinned. I know you've sinned before God, but now it's time to celebrate. Folks, don't let Satan keep you stuck in your sin. Forget the duck. 
Repent. Realize your sin. Repent from your sin. Ask God to forgive you of your sin and be happy that He will forgive you. Scripture tells us that because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, because He was buried, because He beat death and sin, He has gone before us on our behalf. And when we confess our sins, when we ask forgiveness, it's given to us. Our sins are forgiven to us as far as the east is to the west. And if that's not something to get happy about, I don't know what is. Brothers and sisters, joy is a part of God's character. That's the cool thing. And we're created in His image. Joy is a part of His character. Psalm 104.31 says this. And I want you to, to write these down so you can go back and read them this week. 31 through 34, 35, it says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to Him as I rejoice in the Lord. Joy is a part of God's character. Joy is a part of God's purpose for our lives. Philippians 4, 4 through 4-7 tells us, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Okay, not bad. You're getting there. He says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And this is the best part about joy. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Folks, when we rejoice in the Lord, when we go before Him with our prayers and our petitions and our thanksgiving and and we present our requests to God, we can have joy. We can rejoice in our forgiveness. Even King David with his sin with Bathsheba and it was called out and I told you that story. He went to the Lord. He said in Psalm 51, 1 through 12, and look this up this week because this just is awesome. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He's realized his sin. He's realized, he's, he's confessed his sin. He's asking forgiveness. He says, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11 says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And God did just that. See, there were consequences to David's actions. But the God of joy restored King David. And to this day, David is still known as a man after God's own heart. The same restoration is available for us. Don't get caught up in your sin. Repent. Ask forgiveness. Come on, get happy. You see, when we have been forgiven, we will find joy in our relationship with God. But you're not going to be forgiven if you don't ask. 
Psalm 28, 6 through 7 says, Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. He helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Folks, our God is a forgiver of sins. Praise him. He is a restorer of lives. Come on, get happy. Our happiness should come from the fact that our God does what he says he will do. He is just and good. And if you're struggling with being happy, maybe it's because you're not in the presence of the Lord. Let me tell you this. If you aren't spending time in his word, if you aren't spending time in prayer with God, you will find that you are not in the presence of God. It's hard to find joy in the Lord when you aren't spending time with him. But when we're spending time with God, when we're in His Word, when we're in prayer with Him, we can find joy in His presence. Look at what David wrote in Psalm 16. He said, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood such God, or to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Folks, if you're not in the word, if you're not praying, you will not find yourself in the pleasures of God. You will not find yourself in the presence of God. I love that verse. It says, you will fill me with joy in your presence. When I'm, not, when I'm spending time in God's word personally and not just for sermons or lesson preparation, there's a difference in my countenance. There's a difference in the way I act. There's a difference in the way I present myself. It's a difference in how I look at the world around me. Fill me with joy in your presence, Lord. And with eternal pleasures at your right hand, Eternal pleasures, that's a glimpse at heaven. Heaven is going to be awesome. The eternal joy and the pleasure that we will have before the Lord in heaven is indescribable. And that is all the promise we need to live a life of joy here on earth. Listen, I could go on and on and on sharing with you from Psalms and the rest of God's Word about the promises of joy that we have in God. Like I said, no language has more words for joy and rejoicing as the Hebrew language. Joy is not something we should lightly dismiss. Joy in the Lord is not something we should take for granted either. Nehemiah knew this. King David knew this. And today as God's people, we are continually reminded of this throughout Scripture. And we should be encouraged by God's Word. Joy is just one act of repentance away. And like King David and the Israelites, we may have consequences for our actions. 
There, there are consequences for sin. There's consequences for selfishness before the Lord. But when we repent, when we confess, when we stop sinning, we will know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of our Lord is our strength in trouble. The joy of the Lord is our strength in testing. The joy of the Lord is our strength in temptations. The joy of the Lord is our strength in the, in the tedious and the monotonous times of life. Nehemiah rebuked the people because they were choosing to remain in the gloom and doom of their sin. He said, no more. There comes a time even in godly sorrow to just get happy. With this example in mind, wouldn't you agree that it's also time for us to just get happy? I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what you need to do to find your joy in the Lord. Maybe for you it's time to do whatever it takes to find joy in the Lord. If your first step towards real joy is to, is to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to submit to Him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the water's ready. I could change clothes. We could make that happen. And I can't think of a better way for you to start out your week than by submitting into the joy of the Lord. It's time. Get happy. And some of you may be thinking, well, I've done that. I've been baptized, but I've reached a point in life where I'm just bogged down. I understand that. Jesus didn't say it would be easy. He did, however, promise us a place in eternity. So who cares how hard it is right now? A place in eternity. A good place in eternity. That's what he promised us for living our lives as a reflection of him. Whether you're bowed down in life or not, you will receive a place in heaven with a realization that we've done what, we've, what we said we would do. For, to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on, get happy. Repent. Reconnect with God today. If you're not sure what that looks like, then come on up. Our elders are here. They would love to talk with you and pray with you about what that will look like in your life and to help you in accountability just like Nehemiah did. But whatever your response is to God's word this morning, remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Will you stand and sing our response song with us and respond to God with joy in your heart? After all, you've been carrying this burden on your own for far too long. Let's get happy. Hey, it's been great to be here with you all this morning to share some of the secrets of joy with you, but now it's time to go. As you go this week, remember that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's a matter of commandment. It's a matter of change. But most of all, living a life with the joy of the Lord is a matter of choice. So as you go this morning, choose who you will serve. My prayer is that you will choose to serve the Lord and that you will choose to let joy be evident in your life as you go out to be a reflection of Him. Will you sing this last song with us?